Well, during my undergrad days, you could say that I was less than what you could call an ambitious academic. I was looking for what is technically called blow-off courses most of the time. Things like ultimate frisbee and rock climbing and floral arrangement. Tried really hard, could not get in there. Uh, but I was looking for classes like that, history of rock and roll, things like this, you know, high, lofty academic pursuits. And one year, I finally found one that I thought would be the sweetest blow-off class of all time. My brother and a good friend of ours, we got into this class called Aerobic Walking 198. It's power walking. And we got in there, and I was like, this is going to be so awesome. What are we going to do, like go to the mall at 9 a.m. on Tuesdays and race the old ladies? Is that what we're going to do for class? And I'm like, I'll just walk from the bus stop. Do I get to go home now? Like, I did my homework today. Thought it was going to be so easy. The professor, she was trying to be really nice. Like, just call me Alyssa. Like, we're going we're gonna to do some stretches. Like, oh, we're going to stretch today for walking? I've been doing that since I've got up today. I think I'm okay. I don't, need to, I don't need to stretch. But it turns out aerobic walking is super hard and really ugly looking and very painful. You get shin splints. We had to walk around Spence Park. It sits in the shadow of Kyle Field. We had to walk around it like 100 times in three minutes or something insane like that to get an A, and then the slower you went, your grade went down. Nobody got an A in the whole class except for one kid who weighed 90 pounds and I think had rollerblades on under his shoes because his knees weren't bending, but he was flying. This class was so hard that we had to do. I gravely, and my brother and Sam and my friend and I, we all had to fight our hardest to not get a C in walking. We've been doing this since we were two, but it was so, so I gravely underestimated what it was to be in aerobic walking 198. It was a lot more than I had entailed. And I'm going to argue that we do the same thing with the fourth commandment all the time, that we gravely underestimate what it is. What I want to do right off the bat is show you five things that we aren't going to talk about that are Sabbath related to just prove our underestimation. We're not going to talk about the Sabbath year. In Exodus 23, that Israel's supposed to let the ground lay fallow, no crops, no planting for an entire year, and God's going to provide in the sixth year three years' worth of crops to carry you through that one year in the building up of the next year. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about the year of Jubilee. So on the seventh Sabbath, the 50th year, you take another year off, and you let everybody's property revert back to originally owned it, and if you were in debtor's prison, essentially you were a slave to somebody else because you couldn't pay your debts, they had to let you go free because God's economy is not established upon debt. We're not going to talk about that. We're also not going to talk about the seventh day of creation in the sense that there is no evening and morning to end that day. So are we still in the seventh day of creation, a perennial Sabbath? We're not going to talk about that. We don't have time. We're also not going to talk about that the reason that Israel gets kicked out of the land when they get exiled is because they wouldn't keep the Sabbath, according to Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We aren't going to be able to talk about that exile relationship. We're also not going to be able to talk about Hebrews 4 and the remaining Sabbath rest for the people of God. That The writer of Hebrews says that Joshua is a form, a type of Jesus, Yeshua, which is Jesus' Hebrew name and Joshua's Hebrew name. And we're not going to have time to talk about that. The rest that's coming, there remains a Sabbath rest. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is too late. We don't have time. This Sabbath is a massive idea in Scripture, a colossal 
idea. And we've diminished it down to such nothingness at times. The Sabbath is the most underestimated idea in the, in the Ten Commandments, maybe in the top ten of the Bible. But we've mostly just messed with the drippings of the faucet of the Sabbath and, and shunned the Niagara Falls of it that's in Scripture. In the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the word Sabbath is mentioned 46 times. In the Gospels, when Jesus is walking the earth, it's mentioned 50 times. More times in the Gospels than it is in the Pentateuch. 170 times throughout our entire Bibles. This is a huge idea. And if God went to the trouble to mention it so frequently and so pointedly in such prominent positions of Scripture, then we would be wise to note that and to study accordingly. This is an important idea. And it's often underestimated because it's undertaught, and it's often undertaught because it can be enigmatic. Moses says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Paul says, let no one be your judge in regard to a Sabbath. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? We're going we're to work on that this morning. So many of us have probably just given up dealing with the Sabbath altogether. It was just like, I, I, can't, I can't deal with that. I can't try to figure that out. Probably because you had some relative or friend who went to a hyper-fundamentalist church called Everybody Besides Us is a Pagan Bible Church, and they said things like this to you when you went on a jog on Sunday that you were running with the devil, and that when you burned your tongue on the Starbucks you bought on Sunday, they just went, it's going to be a lot harder than that where you're going. We've all had friends and family or acquaintances who think like that, but where do we get this institutional idea of a day of reverence where things are different that day than they aren't other days. You ever heard of the blue laws that exist in the United States? Blue laws? So in Texas, on Sunday, you can't sell liquor at all. And you can't sell it on Christmas Day either. And in, uh, in Mississippi, you can't sell alcohol of any kind on Sunday. In Virginia, you can't hunt on Sunday within 200 yards of a church. That would be a problem in Texas. There are some churches that are in range of deer stands. But, that, but that's a law that exists, a state law. In Texas, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Michigan, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, they all have laws preventing the sale of cars on Sunday. Can't sell a car in those states on Sunday. And in Massachusetts, which is by far not a Christian state, if you work retail on Sunday, legally they have to pay you time and a half if you're working on Sunday. And in North Dakota, no business can be open at all until noon on Sunday. This still exists right now. Where does this come from? Why is our society, our government still structured with this kind of reverence for one day over six? It comes from the fourth commandment. We need to understand where this all comes from. The main thing that we're going to look at this morning is we're going to try to prove a point, and then we're going to look at its implications the, the, the point that we're going to try to prove, the question that we're going to try to answer is, is the fourth commandment a moral law? Or is it merely civil and ceremonial? Because God's law is broken up in those three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. And if the Sabbath is moral, then it's permanent. We, we still need to be observing it, whatever observing it means. But if it's civil and ceremonial, then that means that it's been fulfilled in Christ, we no longer need to, so let's explain this. As an example of a ceremonial and civil law that's kind of gone away now, 
we don't have to wash our hands in a golden bowl before we come in here for corporate worship anymore. Jesus fulfilled the law. We can also leave and go eat lunch, and that lunch can have bacon and shrimp and catfish, three, only three animals I cared that were on that sheet in Act chapter 10. And there needed to be a pig and a fish and a shrimp on that thing so I can eat it. And we can now because that's been fulfilled in Christ. But we are not free to commit adultery. We are not free to lie. So where is the distinction? The distinction is between civil and ceremonial and moral. Moral laws continue on because they proceed from God's very nature. So we need to answer the question about the Sabbath. Is it moral or is it not? Now, this may seem a little bit lofty or kind of high up there this morning, and it it might be. But what I would like to ask you to do is just hang in there with me because it's been so undertaught on both sides of the coin that we don't know what to make of the fourth commandment, and we need to because God wrote it for us. Let's look at it. Before we go any further, let's read it. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And we also need to read the Deuteronomy account of this and the re-giving of the law. We need to read what is re-given to the people. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, if you're paying attention, you noticed two big differences real quick between the Exodus account and the Deuteronomy account. And we're going to get to those, don't worry. But we needed to read those. Before we do, Sabbath in Hebrew is the word Shabbat, and it means to cease or to rest. Have you ever heard of anybody taking a sabbatical, Sabbath? that it's a rest from work. I'm not doing what I normally do, and I'm pausing and not going to do that. That's what a sabbatical is. So we're familiar with the meaning of this word and the context for it. And did you notice that the charge in both accounts is to keep it holy, not make it holy? God already made it holy. It's our duty to keep it holy by observing it, whatever observing it means. And how do they... Keep it holy. How do we keep it holy? It says you don't do any work on it and you don't allow anyone who have influence over or your animals to work on it. And what day is it? It says on six days you do all your work and the seventh day you rest. It's the seventh day. So the Hebrew Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. And remember where we are in the Ten Commandments in the order. The first four are called the first table of the commandments. So that means all four of those are Godward 
laws. These are all laws directed towards God, and it fits under what Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The other six are for people, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this one is Godward. We need to remember that as well. And it's unique. As you notice, there's a couple things that are unique about it. It's written in the positive. It says, remember the Sabbath. It doesn't say, don't violate the Sabbath. So it's a positive charge. Only one other law is that way, and it's the next one, honor your father and mother. That's, it's positive as well. And it receives the most text devoted to it than, more than any other commandment. There's four verses in Exodus and Deuteronomy about the Sabbath. So there's a lot, there's more written about it than any other law. The one that comes closest is the idolatry, what Evan preached about last week, and that gets three verses. So this is a big deal. There's a lot written about it. And did you notice the two different foundations? Exodus says, why is the Sabbath holy? Because God created the world in six 24-hour days and rested on the seventh one. So creation is the foundation for it in Exodus. But in Deuteronomy, the foundation that is brought up by God through Moses is Israel's redemption from Egypt. So the foundation is dual. It's creation and redemption because God is our creator who then redeems us. It's a massive idea here. And it's going to carry on throughout. Don't worry, it'll, it'll play out as we continue on. So let's go back to our original question. Is the fourth commandment a moral law? Well, let's do some investigation because if it's civil or ceremonial, then we're free to just disregard it as fulfilled and done and we no longer have to deal with it or mess with it in any way. But if it's moral, we don't get to do that. So let's make the case. Then let's look at Genesis 2. This is the first mentioning of a rest on a seventh day in Bible. In the Bible, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the Sabbath or one day in seven being a day of rest goes back to the beginning, the very beginning, that it's in the very order of creation. What was the pinnacle of creation? We often say, well, the creation of man, right? Adam and Eve, like that's the pinnacle of creation. But does that line up with the whole of Scripture? Is God more interested in man being exalted or himself being glorified? Are we number one or is God number one? That's what we have to boil us down to. But then you get to the seventh day, and you're like, well, God rested because God created and God made it holy. So it is the pinnacle. It is the climax of creation because it is God focused. So then that would make the Sabbath, therefore, a creation ordinance, that it goes back all the way to creation. That would make it permanent, not temporary. If it's a creation ordinance, now, now God doesn't actually rest. We know that, right? We know that from various places in Scripture. Psalm 121, 3 through 4 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So God doesn't need to rest. He was modeling a day of rest and a day of worship 
So then if we are made in the image of God, would not it be in keeping with us as image bearers to do what God did? Our image bearing is connected to doing what God has done. And if God has rested, then that coheres together. And what other creation ordinances? I use that term creation ordinance. It's an important term. What other creation ordinances do we still keep? What are still existing? Well, we keep Genesis 1.28, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth, right? The creation mandate. That's what we as people do. We are fruitful. We multiply physically and spiritually. We have spiritual children and physical children. We subdue the earth. We reign supreme over the earth. The whales don't reign over us. So we keep that one. And what about a seven-day week? Everybody across the globe has a seven-day week. We don't have a solar or a lunar reason for a seven-day week. There are astrophysical reasons for days, for months, and for years, but there's no reason in the physical universe for a seven-day week. You could just as easily have just three 10-day weeks in every month. And in fact, the French tried to do that during the Enlightenment, and it didn't work. So we all hold to a seven-day week. Why? Because of creation. There's no other reason that we hold to creation. So there are creation ordinances that we still hang on to. So why is it that when God speaks this law out, this fourth commandment out, in the presence of the people, they all hear it, and he writes it down. He writes the word remember. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. How can you remember something that you never knew? So that has to go back further than them right there. It's not like a brand new thing that happened. So it goes back to Genesis, but it also goes back four chapters in the book of Exodus. That's where the Sabbath is delineated most clearly. Look at Genesis or Exodus chapter 16, verse 22. This is in the context of God giving his people manna to eat in the wilderness, bread that appeared that day to provide for them. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So God gave it to them four chapters before Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. They knew what the Sabbath was from this and from creation. So it's not a new thing that comes about on Mount Sinai. They knew about it. And can you see what's going on in this picture he gives them in Exodus 16? Every day there's bread provided for you. All you need to take is what you get and can eat that day. What do they do? They take way more than they need for a day. And then when they wake up in the morning, what happened to their jar full of bread? It's rotten, it's moldy, and it has worms in it. That's what happens. So they learn pretty quickly. Okay, he's serious. We just take what he provides for us for a day. That's what he'll give us 
every day what we need. And then this second imagery comes along, except on Friday, we don't do it that way. On Friday, we take twice as much as we need because when we wake up tomorrow, there's not gonna be any provision. We're gonna have to trust that what God gave us on a Friday is gonna last us through a Saturday. Can you see Jesus in that? That what God has provided for people today can save and carry them through when they wake up on the other side. When there will not be any provision anymore. That you believe in faith in Christ now, today, because tomorrow is too late. If you don't gather manna on Friday, then you don't have anything on Saturday. But if you take what God provides today, then tomorrow, when you cannot work and there is no provision, you will be redeemed. We see Jesus in that. So they got the Sabbath. They, they understood. They, they say, so when Moses says, remember, he doesn't have to give them a big, long explanation because they know. They've been living that way for a while. So remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They're already familiar with that concept. So what are our implications from Scripture about the Sabbath? We need to look at this because clearly it precedes the Mosaic law and it goes all the way back to Genesis, making it a moral commandment. Now, it has civil and ceremonial attachments, but at its root, it is a moral. So it has permanent implications for the people of God. God told his prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 20, verse 12, what the Sabbath was. He says, moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The Sabbath was a sign of God's sanctifying work in his people assigned to his people and to everybody else. And his people would know that he is their provider and he alone gives them rest. That they don't have to work on Saturday because he gave them all they needed. They can just stay at home. He's serious about his people knowing that and respecting that rest. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11, 28 and 29? All you who are weary and heavy laden come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So the Sabbath is a sign of redemption for Christians. That God will provide all that you need and will carry you into and sustain you through his rest. That's what he's given to us and that's what he's provided for us. That's why it's rooted in Deuteronomy in Israel's redemption from Egypt. They were freed from bondage and taken into the promised land. It depicts for us an eternal rest that's coming for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we say rest in peace. Christians are looking forward to the end of our labor today, just as Jews were looking forward to the end of their labor in Egypt, to the day in which we can rest in the presence and worship of God. So now a dissenting voice would say something along these lines, that the civil and ceremonial attachments to the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, render it invalid for Christians today. Because there's all this hoopla that goes around the Sabbath, what you can do, what you can't do, you can't light a fire. Well, is everybody who's turned on the heater in the wintertime not going to be saved now because they didn't do it? Well, let's, let's look at this. What, what do the civil and ceremonial attachments mean the first Sabbath violator. You know what happened to him in Numbers 15? You know what he was doing? He was just picking up sticks. 
You know what happens to him? He's stoned to death. So the first guy to violate the Sabbath gets the death penalty. So because we're not putting people to death for violating the Sabbath, today it's invalid, right? Well, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, came with a very steep price that gets delineated for us in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. A rebellious, sinful, older child who will not listen to their parents, God says in Deuteronomy 21, put them to death. So because we're not stoning teenagers anymore, does that mean that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, goes out the window? What about adultery? And of Leviticus 20, it says both parties involved in adultery are to be put to death. We don't do that anymore. So does that mean that we can throw out the commandment about adultery? That shall not commit adultery doesn't matter anymore because we don't put people to death for that anymore. No, it has a moral significance. So why would the fourth commandment be any different? Than that. And it's also interesting to note that if it's only a ceremonial law, then why is it the only ceremonial law that carries capital punishment? No other ceremonial law carried that. Not even circumcision, failing to do that, the sign of the covenant that you were of the people of God. If you failed to do that, that didn't carry the death penalty. Why would the Sabbath do that if it was merely ceremonial? That's inconsistent. It would make it an anomaly and not consistent with the rest of the Decalogue of Ten Commandments. Dr. David Jones spelled it out like this. I can't say it any better than him. He says, as with other Old Testament civil and criminal laws, just because the theocratic laws are no longer applicable does not mean that the moral underpinnings of the law are no longer relevant. The church age in which we live is not mutually exclusive with the moral law of God. So when he says they're a theocratic system of government, that's what Israel had. God was the government. That was it. No elected officials, no other systems. It was God. And what God said was law, and he is the end of the government. And we don't have that here, but that doesn't negate God's morality. God's morality still rules his people today. Moral law continues on for all of us today. So a second dissenting voice would say this. What about Colossians 2? What about Colossians 2, 16 and 17 that says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This appears to be saying we can just chunk the whole thing. You can just get rid of the whole thing. We don't need the Sabbath at all. It appears to be saying that, but context in Colossians 2 doesn't allow for that. Well, the context does in verses 3, 4, and 5 leading up to those verses, or I mean 13, 14, and 15, says uh, that Jesus has forgiven the sins of the repentant, their inability to keep God's perfect law perfectly. He has nailed that to the cross. So don't let anybody else put implications on your salvation with the law on you. That in order to be saved, I need to observe these days and eat these foods and do these washings and these ways. Otherwise, I can't be saved. Paul says, no, that's all been perfectly fulfilled in Christ and the sins violating them have been nailed to the cross. So how did Jesus deal with the Sabbath then? What does he do on the Sabbath? He feeds people. He heals people. He fellowships with people. He teaches people. He worships with people. He also goes out of his way to debunk the Pharisees' legalism around the Sabbath. Remember the 
him and the disciples walking through the fields and they just pluck the heads of wheat off and they rub the chaff off in their fingers and they eat it and the Sabbath police go busted. You can't do that. That was work, technically. You can't do that. And Jesus is like, no, the Sabbath is with, the man is not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for man, implying that there's still something for us to do on the Sabbath. Jesus kept, he observed and remembered the Sabbath. So what do we do now? We know that the fourth commandment is valid. We know that there are implications for us today, but what are they? What, we're not even worshiping on the right day. Do we need to become Seventh-day Adventists and worship on Saturday? Do we, do we need to do that? How do we even get to where the church, as normal practice, worships on Sunday so that so a country can have blue laws that are only in effect on Sunday? How do we get there? Well, the early church moved the day of worship for one, to get distance from Judaism, but two, because Jesus, primarily because Jesus resurrected on a Sunday and appeared to people on a Sunday. Acts 20, verse 7 gives us a hint of that gathering. It says, on the first day of the week, this is what Luke is writing, on the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. This is Paul preaching. This is where he preaches so long that Eutychus falls out of the window and dies. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, we're not going to live that example today. Uh, but he's preaching and they're breaking bread and they've gathered. That's the worship service. On what day? The first day of the week. Not the last day of the week. So it's moved. And John, in Revelation 1.10, mentions the Lord's Day. That on the Lord's Day, that's when he had this vision. Which So he seems to think that it's moved to Sunday. I mean, that's been the practice of the church since the early first century, just historically. So how did we get there? And does that then invalidate the Sabbath as it's delineated in the Old Testament? Does that invalidate it as what we have studied? But let's ask another question. Do we have any other record of an Old Testament principle, an Old Testament institution that keeps the same name but travels, but moves locations per se? Yeah, we have two we can think of real quick, the, the temple and the priesthood. The temple is explained in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You're not a building, last I checked. What's talking about here is where is the presence of God? Where is the spirit of God? It's no longer in one specific building, on one specific mount, in one city in the Near East, off the coast of the Mediterranean. That the temple is now within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But Paul calls us a temple. Same word. The place just traveled in New Testament. And the priesthood is the same way. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, the priesthood. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are a priesthood. Biblically, in the Old Testament, half of you couldn't be priests. More than that, if you count uh, children, women and children couldn't be priests. But he says, you're a nation of priests. This new people of God, the church, you're all priests because you can all go into the Holy of Holies. The veil was torn from top to bottom. I can go in there. And we do that every time we pray. I step into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And I don't need somebody else to do that for me or to be a go-between between me and God, because right here I'm told in 1 Peter 2, 9, that I am a priest, priesthood of all believers. So that, that 
institution just traveled, moved locations. So having the Sabbath move from Saturday to Sunday, biblically, is not an earth-shattering problem in any way. It doesn't make sense that in the Pentateuch, what is the Sabbath founded upon? Creation and Israel's redemption. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be more glorious for the Sabbath now to be centered around Christ's recreation of us, that we are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and his redemption of the world? That makes complete sense than to have it be moved that way. So what do we do now? What do we do now? What was God's intended purpose for the Sabbath? The rest and worship. That's what he made it for, rest and worship. So how did Jesus get to the intended purpose behind the other laws in the Ten Commandments? He goes about it like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He does that back and forth. You have heard it said, do not, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that any man who looks upon a woman with lust has already committed lust with her in his heart already. So he gets to the heart behind it. So then what he's saying, committing adultery is a result of a lustful heart. Committing murder is a result of an angry, hateful heart. So how do we do this with the Sabbath? Jesus doesn't do that with the Sabbath in the Sermon on the Mount. He does that throughout his living in the four Gospels all the time. So he would be seeing that the keeping the Sabbath is a result of a worshipful heart because it's in a positive sense. We have do not commit adultery. So adultery is a result of a lustful heart. How do we keep the Sabbath? Keeping the Sabbath is a result of a worshipful heart. That's what proceeds. That's the intended purpose beside that. So ask yourself, is my heart worshipful? Is my heart worshipful? The Sabbath was to be a joyful celebration of God as redeemer and provider. Am I worshipful of that? So the Sabbath existed before Moses. It goes all the way back to creation, thus remains permanent. The Princeton theologian Charles Hodge wrote it like this. It is of a moral obligation that God and his great works should be statedly remembered. It is a moral duty that the people should assemble for religious instruction and for the united worship of God. So all that the fourth commandment did was put into canonical writing what already existed as a universal and natural norm. That's all the fourth commandment did. It was already a universal truth. So what do we do? Be specific. That's what you want. But I can't, because Jesus doesn't. So we're left with, what do we do? I mean, because you can get legalistic with the Sabbath real quick. And all the reading that I've done for the past few weeks, I came across so many people, men and women of the faith, who meticulously kept the Sabbath as New Testament believers. Like, don't even talk to me about something that's not related to God. I'm going to end that conversation, and you can pick it up with me tomorrow. I mean, you could find that real quick. It wouldn't be hard. But that would be man's rules and not God's laws. We don't need Pharisees 2.0. We don't need a renewed version of the Talmud. The Talmud was the Pharisaical commentary on the Bible that said, hey, keep the Sabbath. Here's how you keep the Sabbath. You can take this many steps. You can carry this much weight. You can turn the lights on and off this many times. You can have a fire that's this big. They would go and they would delineate all the way out what you could do and what you couldn't do. We don't need that because we live in the age of grace. And we don't need to get legalistic. So I can't say, do this, 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 
on the Sabbath. Just like I can't say no Christian can go into a movie theater without committing adultery in his or her heart. I can't say that. Maybe that's true for some of you. Maybe you can't go there. Maybe there's things that you can't do without a sin coming that way, but you can't make it a rule for everybody. And that's where we are with the Sabbath. We don't want our rules placed on someone else. Scripture doesn't say that. So whatever you decide on how you're going to observe the Sabbath, because we know from Scripture that we must observe the Sabbath, you need to be able to answer this question. If you're going to stand before God and have him ask you, in the regular rhythm of your life, what did you regularly do to make sure that you were more engrossed with me than you were with the world? If God was to ask you that question, what did you do in the regular rhythm of your life to regularly check on whether or not you were more engrossed with God than you were with the things of the world? That's what's outlined for us in the Sabbath. How would you have to answer that question to the one who knows everything about you? Let me help you answer that question. Would you ever advise someone to work seven days a week? That's a good idea. Just wall-to-wall work seven days a week. And mothers, I know you work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I know that. But I'm talking about work or, or other things. You don't, you, you're going to have to change a diaper on Sunday, but you don't have to have a t-ball game on Sunday. So would you advise anybody have wall-to-wall activities and works seven days a week? No, you would never advise anybody to do that. Would you ever advise somebody against making a priority of corporate worship and an intentional period of worship? Would you ever advise anybody against that? No, then what's your problem with the Sabbath? What's, What's our problem with the Sabbath then? If we both acknowledge those things, then what's our problem with it? One, one scholar said it like this. It was so clear when I read it. He said, the fourth commandment is the first commandment that is stated positively. The first commandment is you have no other gods before me. Keep the Sabbath is that's how you're going to prove that. I'm going to prove to you that I have no other gods besides the one true God of the universe because I'm going to stop all that I normally do. And this day is a day for God. This day is a day where we focus on him, where we worship together. That's how I'm going to display that I have no other gods before me. I don't have to be in the rat race. I don't have to get ahead one extra day. Do your kids and your friends know that about you that there are days where I can't get a hold of them? There are days where she ain't coming to the office. Do they know that about us? Because the Sabbath is an event more than it is a day. It's an event more than it is in a day because if you can't refrain from work for a day, then who does that say that you think your provider is? You think it's you. If you can't, if you can't take the focus off your daily schedule, your daily grind, or your agenda and the things that you want to do, then who does that say that you worship? Now, sometimes we go through seasons where work is just nuts, right? That happens. But when it's up to you and your choice, who do you tell everybody watching you, this is my provider, this is who I worship? Does our rhythm communicate that? That's what we have to answer before God. I'm going to end with this quote from 
author that I read a whole bunch this week, he said this, and it's a great perspective on how we should think about the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping ought not be viewed as a laborious duty, but rather should be a natural desire of the heart that reflects the eternal rest and redemption made possible through the cross. Because we've been redeemed, we rest and reflect and we worship. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us this day and that we do have a day that we don't uh, foolishly or haphazardly call yours and that this day is an event and that it shows us so much that you provide, you redeem, and you have created that all of our lives and all of our existence is for you and for you alone. Let us be a people who model that, not because it makes us look better, not because we have some tangible thing to be able to look down on other people with, but because we as individuals, as families, as a church body, want to reflect and worship you because you alone are worthy of worship in our obsession. And we know that we look forward to the eternal rest that you bought by the sacrificing of your son for us in our place. And that in faith, we can trust what you provide for us today to carry us through tomorrow because the substance is Christ. We pray that in his name, amen.